0: Hi Jamie, how are you? Hi
1: Catalina, I am well, thank you. How are you today?
2: Very well, thank
1: you. Fantastic. Uh, okay. You know, I'm gonna ping. I'm gonna uh, share the room because I keep forgetting Clubhouse can do that.
2: Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming. We'll start in around seven minutes. Thank you.
1: Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us or good afternoon for me if you happen to be of the European or otherwise.
2: Yeah, today's topic, um, as you can see by the description on the top, will be that um, Dr. Um, Edward Marseille, They discovered a new type of lung cell in the human. Um, And um, yeah, Dr. Edward, he is at the Pearlman School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania. And he will be here um any minute now and we'll talk about this um yeah this amazing paper that he just published
1: it's amazing a new part of the a new part of the lung we didn't know about <laughs> well, it makes you wonder what else is around there that we don't know and we'll have to see what the implications are for something like that a lot of people with these lung problems. And it's definitely referring to COPD. I know several people that have got that problem. So I'm quite looking forward to hearing this talk.
2: Yeah, it's really, It still amazes me that in the last years, we, we still discover new parts of our body that we didn't discover yet.
1: It's exciting and a little bit scary. <laughs> There's
0: things happening
1: in there, we still don't know. <laughs> we always have this impression that we've totally cracked the human body, you know? That you know we've, we know all there is to know about it.
2: Yeah, apparently. No, we didn't. <laughs> we think <laughs> well... that and then we don't which is yeah
1: but it's hard it's hard to know what we don't know right no Yep,
2: yeah, exactly just assuming that we know a lot is probably the wrong thing <laughs> 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 that's all i can say
1: <laughs> it's true it's true just Every single time we seem to get a bit overconfident with, yes, we know this perfectly, boom, something comes along. Exactly. Which is, which is really great, though. I am glad that, I am glad that we don't get sort of cemented in our own certainty.
2: Yeah, that's important to not be that, like, yeah.
1: Yeah, keep on working on that neuroplasticity constantly.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Keep learning.
1: Let me see. So everyone, um, take a chance to have a look at the paper. We've got a few minutes. It's definitely an interesting read. Ever noticed that, Katrina? This little thing you've got here, red apple, and that's health. Is that the little emoji yeah. topic thing? <laughs>
2: it's the topic, I—it's not my choice. Like, um, the symbols. The symbols are, you know.
1: Just I wonder. I wonder who came up with that. Like, think of health. Hmm, apple. Yes, that was my first thought when I think of health. Ah, uh, that must be Apple a day keeps the doctor away. That's probably where that comes from. Yep.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's true.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's probably where that comes from. Bit of a a, a twisty windy mental road they did, though, to, kind of, <laughs> to get there, though. <laughs> Health and Apple. But hey, they got there. Um.
2: Exactly, it's the same engineering and um, uh, pizza. Uh, also, and, okay, okay, really? Yeah, <laughs> it's a pizza slice. The engineering.
1: Um... I always wondered about what that pizza slice was doing there. <laughs> <laughs> is is this because it's a marvel of engineering or something like that? I.
2: Yeah, I, I don't, maybe because you do so many nights and order pizza. I have no idea. I don't
1: know. Or, I don't know, but because it's circular, and it's like the wheel and engineering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Tell us what you think in, in the room chat. Why yes. do you think Why do pizza? You... Yeah. <laughs> is connected it's connected with engineering. Exactly. <laughs> funny. Oh, this could this could always be cause for our own separate rooms, a different time, a different place. What does this symbol signify? And I see there's a little microbe thing, that's the, the COVID stuff. was, was, was this you picking one that was related to the lungs, Katerina? Yeah. I I I, I see how you got there.
2: uh yeah um of course everything we can discover about the lung hi edward how are you welcome
1: welcome Dr. Thank Dr. you for Thanks.
2: coming the unmute button if you're on a iphone or um, um ipad should be all the way on the right bottom corner there's a little microphone symbol Uh, If you press on that, we can hear you. Can you hear us? Um,
3: Can you hear hear me now?
0: yes okay sorry
3: i'm actually on my my uh computer so i couldn't find the little button but uh oh
2: yeah i'm sorry
3: no no worries no
2: worries
3: (laughs) thank you so So, yeah Um, you'll have to guide me a little bit about uh how you want to do this uh you know tell me what you how you want to go about this
2: uh sure so usually uh i would introduce you uh, to the audience with giving a little bit, you know, of information about you. Uh, Jamie usually asks, um, uh, like a more general question, how you became to work in this field. And then, um, we would, we would, uh, keep it relatively short because I, I understand you have one hour, right?
3: Right. Yeah. I have another meeting to to attend.
2: Exactly. So we'll, that we'll keep it um, right in that time. And um, then if you would like to give a summary about the work and how you came about it, uh, that would be wonderful. And then if we still have some time for a few questions, that would be, um, you know, that would be great. So,
0: sure.
2: Perfect. So, yeah, let's just start. Uh, welcome, everyone, to the Science Society. We are um, very honored to have um, our guest speaker here today and um, talking about his work. And and let me give you a little bit of information. Uh, Dr. Edward Morrissey, he is um, at the Robinette Foundation Professor of Cardiovascular Medicine. He's the Scientific Director on the Institute for Regenerative Medicine University of Pennsylvania and director of the Penn Center for Pulmonary Biology at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, his um, he got his uh, Bachelor in Science in Microbiology from the University of Illinois um, and his PhD in Molecular Biology at the Northwestern University. And um, the overarching goal of his lab is to understand the cellular and molecular processes required to um, generate, maintain, and regenerate by different tissues with um, in the um, mature or adult mammalian resp- respiratory system. And um, yeah. Thank you so much for being here. And Jamie, the stage is yours to ask a couple of questions.
1: Thank you very much, Katharina. So first of all, Science Society definitely welcomes you, Dr. Mercy. You're working on some very exciting stuff. Um, But we'll start it off by taking you way back to your origins, because we actually love hearing what got someone into science in the first place. Um, First of all, can you tell us what, what was it that sort of started you on this kind of field of academia and search for knowledge
3: okay great well it's wonderful to be here and, and, to, and to be talking to you today um so you know i grew up in a very small town in the midwest of the united states and i always was you know intrigued by just nature you know everything around me whether it was you know insects or looking up at the stars and such so i i had a sort of a, an ongoing you know love with just the the world and nature itself. Um, so when I went to college, I decided I wanted to study microbiology, uh, the study of microorganisms. Um, I had this fantasy because I wanted to sort of combine my love of nature and my love of uh, space into to sort of understanding exobiology. And there is a there actually is an office. I think it's called something different now, but there was an office at NASA. Um, there was you know the Department of Exobiology, and that was the The study of potentially if we ever got to Mars or something like that to understand what microorganisms will do so that's sort of like that sort of cross between almost like science fiction and and science was really what inspired me as as a young person. Um, So I studied microbiology in college, Um, I actually went to work at Abbott Laboratories for four years before I went back to graduate school, it was a really important thing for me to sort of get out and see what uh, you know what happened when you try to commercialize science. Um, went back to graduate school um, and then did a postdoctoral fellowship at University of Chicago. And that's where I I started really, you know, examining, you know, the development of the cardiovascular system and the pulmonary system. And then after that, I uh, uh, got a faculty position here at UPenn and really, you know, sort of just moved on and trying to understand primarily in the last five to, to 10 years, really how lungs develop, and how they respond to external stimuli uh and in in the case of many of the things we're doing now how they respond to injury and of course that's you know obviously quite topical in the in the era of the covid pandemic um because it's predicted that you know having this this widely you know infectious disease infecting probably maybe ultimately billions of people throughout the globe there's going to be a huge increase in chronic lung disease in addition to obviously the acute symptoms of the pandemic itself so there's a lot of interest in how the lungs respond to injury um, how they regenerate um, and they are a regenerative organ um, in comparison to say organs such as the heart which does not really readily regenerate in in mammals Um, so that's that's really sort of how i got started it's a very quick bio of myself and certainly open to other
1: questions even the quick bio of yours is absolutely fascinating and i bet you didn't expect um what you're working on i would mean, it always had big relevance but with the COVID pandemic it probably brought the relevance into the stratosphere at that point right um yes. what what was it that uh, got you into the lungs then specifically uh, what was it that kind of moved in this direction because as, as i heard your path it sounded like it was quite steady but there must have been something that you thought lungs breathing let's go there
3: yeah, so I, you know, I, like I said, I started out working really primarily in cardiovascular uh, development as a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Chicago, and we were working on some transcription factors called GATA GATA transcription factors. It's a family of six transcriptional regulators. They're known um, as pioneer factors, or some of the uh, primordial transcription factors that sort of insert themselves and open up, help open up DNA for to uh, for genes to be expressed, um, and by doing that, uh, one of the gene knockouts, you know, one of the knockout mice that we generated actually had a lung defect and it was not expected. But, you know, when I looked at that, I was just really enamored by just in some ways the beauty of of the respiratory system. I mean, it's this very delicate and, you know, uh, elegant looking branched network of airways that has a parallel branch network of, of blood vessels, that obviously are required for gas exchange. And there wasn't really that much known at the time about lung development or about how lungs um, interact with the external environment, how they're injured and how they respond um, and regenerate. So it really was a wide open field. So some ways it was pragmatic. Um, I was in a field that it was a very large and very intense uh, scientific field, cardiovascular development and biology. And I saw this opportunity to study something that really was underserved in many
1: ways. That is absolutely, that is definitely fascinating, because I know that a, a lot of us um, layman's, we just think, oh, the lungs, you know, you breathe in, there's air, you breathe out, there's, you know, uh, carbon dioxide, there we go, it's resolved Um, <laughs> It's quite lighted to see how much we didn't know. Eric, anyway, thank yes. you very much for the questions. And um, am you ready for your talk? Um, The floor is yours, doctor.
3: Okay, so I thought I would just, you know, sort of go through the, the paper um, fairly quickly in 10 15 minutes at most. Um, and certainly interrupt me at any point if you have questions. Um, uh, so I think everyone has the copy of the paper in front of them. Is that true?
2: Uh, yeah, we shared the, yeah. the link and yeah, everyone has it. Thank you.
3: No problem. Um, so, you know, the, the genesis of why we asked the question that this paper addresses really comes down to the fact that, as we were just talking about, you know, I've had a long standing interest um in understanding how the respiratory system develops and how it, it responds to external uh external environment including you know diseases acute diseases or a chronic lung disease um so with that in mind you know we use the mouse as is our workhorse um it's the model system that you know most labs working in, in respiratory biology use um because it's it's tractable it's easy to use we can do you know nice genetic gain and loss of function experiments with it. Um, And and the lungs in the mouse are very similar to the lungs in the human, but they're not identical. And that was the key. That was sort of the inflection point that, you know, we were trying to understand what makes the human lung different. Obviously it's, it's huge. The entire, you know, surface area in, in the human lung is about the same surface area that's on a tennis court. So it's got this enormous, you know, interaction between the external environment that is is folded up inside of your chest, almost like a tissue origami, um, and obviously that's very different than a little mouse that has you know a much much smaller, multiple orders of magnitude smaller uh, respiratory system. So that was the, the overarching question. So what we did to get at that question is we utilized what is you know a very common technique now. It wasn't so common five or seven years ago, but a very common technique of using single cell RNA seek of, of the human lung a normal human lung, as well as diseased human lung. And the disease we looked at in this story is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD, which is the most common lung disease in the world. And we'll get back to that in in just a moment and the importance of that. So we did this single cell RNA-seq analysis. And what that does is essentially, it, it examines the transcriptome or the gene expression, you know, every single cell. And you look at this over thousands and thousands tens of thousands of cells across multiple different uh, uh, donor patient samples and in figure one is really the sort of you know gestalt of that first part of the story Um, 1a shows you in in a diagrammatic fashion sort of the differences between the human and the mouse lung and i'll bring your attention to the region that's shown in orange in the human lung and that's the respiratory bronchioles the respiratory airway system and that is that does not exist in the mouse so this is a structure that doesn't exist in mice and is unique to humans and other large mammals so that's where we really wanted to focus and and then we wanted to ask well are there unique cell types in that in that region and indeed through uh, and i don't want to go into too much detail but i'll certainly answer the questions that might come out of this uh through a lot of analysis we identified a cell type that we, you know, we just called it a respiratory airway secretory cell. So secretory cells are found in airways of human and, and mice and other mammals. And they, as the name suggests, they secrete uh, mucins and other sort of um, uh, molecules that help lubricate the large airways of the lung and keep it open and keep it you know, humidified and, 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 and cl- helps clear it also of particulate matter. So this is a unique cell that we did not see in the mouse it had a different gene expression pattern than in the mouse we also only saw this cell in the very distal airways. so if you look at uh say d and g in figure one um d is the distal airways and including the alveolar space where the gas exchange occurs um and g is the sort of uh, umap projection of the proximal airways and the cells we're talking about here are in that sort of bright pink so they're observed in the distal airways but not in the proximal airways um, so, so this is sort of interesting, right? So, this is a cell that is found in this respiratory bronchial region, uh, respiratory airway region, um, a unique structure in the human lung, and it's really only found in that region of the human lung as well. Um, over, you know, on the f- bottom right of Figure One, uh, H through M, our immune immunohist- is immunostatic chemistry looking at different marker genes of this respiratory airway secretory cell, or RAS cell, as we call it uh, as abbreviation. And one of the, the hallmark genes for this cell type is this gene SCGB3A2. And this is sort of what we actually use to identify the cell. We've also used it to track the cell and tissue samples. Um, we looked at human obviously, and I think H shows you this sort of longitudinal landscape, low magnification shot how those red cells are found in the rb region respiratory bronchial region not really found so much in the t- uh, terminal bronchial on the far far left and they're also not found deep into the alveolus or the re the alveolar region where uh the, where the gas exchange is occurring so they're found in this very s- sort of narrow window this uh, respiratory bronchial region and not found in other parts of the lung um the rest of this just shows like that these cells are unique and distinct and other little you know, sort of higher magnification shots. Sometimes, um, as you see in K and, and J, um, you will see these cells express this gene SCGB3A2, which again is the hallmark gene for RAS cells. Sometimes they'll also express genes for the alveolar type two cell, whether that's SFTPC or LAMP3. And as should take a step back here for a moment um, to explain some of the the uh, cells in this region besides the RAS cell. So the most important cells for the rest of the talk will really be the cells in the alveolar region, which are called alveolar type one or alveolar type two cells. Um, alveolar type two cells are the cells that generate the pulmonary surfactant in the lung. Um, again, this is the, the part of the fluid that keeps the lungs from collapsing every time you take a breath. It lowers the surface tension, allows you to open and close your airways and your alveoli without it closing permanently and not you know, allowing it to reopen. So they're a critical, alveolar type 2 cells are critical for making pulmonary surfactant. They're also critical because they act and harbor within their population, uh, the stem progenitor activity in the alveolus. In other words, they have the ability to, in response to injury or chronic disease, proliferate, uh, make more of themselves and also make uh, alveolar type 1 cells. So alveolar type one cells are this very thin, very large extended cell that covers about 90, 95% of the alveolar surface area. It actually forms the gas diffusible interface with the vasculature, the pulmonary vasculature, capillary distal vasculature in the lung. So it is critical for exchanging gases because it's got these very thin cellular processes that overlies the, uh, the vasculature in the alveolar space. So so that's just so just to let you know, those those two cell types, alveolar type 1 and alveolar type 2, they're critical for the function of the alveolus, which is to exchange gas. And going back to the RAS cells, sometimes we saw a very small minority of those RAS cells expressing marker genes that were common to the alveolar type 2 cell, this progenitor cell in the alveolus of the lung. Um, and then finally in I, L, and M is really taking a look again at this RAS cell marker, SCGP3A2, and we looked at this in ferret as well. So ferrets are, are an interesting animal model. Um, they have a lung that is more similar to humans than mouse does. So it was utilized in this context to say these 3 a 2 scgb SCGP3A2 positive cells also seem to exist in this unique structure in the ferret lung that is very similar uh, to the human lung, so the respiratory bronchial. So this whole, Figure really is designed to say we looked deeply using single cell RNA transcriptomics. We found a gene signature and potentially a unique cell type that's in the human lung but does not exist in the mouse lung. It also seems to exist in the ferret. So that's figure one. Did anybody have any questions before
1: I go on to the next figure?
2: Um I think I'm good, but Jamie, do you have a question?
1: Uh, actually, I, I did have a a, a quick one. Um when you talked about um, the, is it the avular type ones? Uh, are, are these the ones that regenerate? Yeah, if there's damage, it, it knows to regenerate if it finds damage. So, is that what you were?
3: Yeah, so all of these cells can regenerate after acute damage, right? So um, we'll talk a little bit about the three to the RAS cells in a moment. But say after an acute damage, after like influenza injury, which is a model that we use in mouse, we can infect mice with flu A and they could get very, very sick and they get significant uh, uh, damage to the lungs. In that context, what happens is the alveolar type 2 cell will start to proliferate, uh, because a lot of the the type 2 cells and type 1 cells after influenza infection get killed off. So the alveolar type two, the remaining cells will proliferate, they'll grow, and then some of them will differentiate back into type 1 cells. So that's sort of the response to an acute infection.
1: type one. Right, right. Because I, I, I'd like to, uh, this could wait for the end, but I wanted to ask, um, I'll put the question down here now, is how do the cells know, like, does it get a, a message going, we're healthy, we're healthy, do nothing, we're healthy, we're healthy, do nothing, oh, we're damaged, start making more, please? It's a great um,
3: question, yeah, and, and maybe actually towards the end, yep, I'll, I'll try to go yep, to the, the, the figures, but it's a really a question, and the short answer is we don't really have a good idea, but there are some some hints, some some ideas about how that occurs. Excellent. Um, okay, so I think the other figures will probably, we'll probably be able to go through them a little bit quicker because that was, that first figure is really a lot of data and there's a ton of supplemental figures that was really just to establish the identification of these cells. So so we have these cells. So th- the other conundrum we have when we work in something that is unique to the human system is that we don't have obvious, the obvious ability to use mice. And as I said before, mice are an incredibly wonderful model organism, we have all the genetics, we have the ability to do these beautiful genetic gain and loss of function experiments, gene knockouts, gene overexpression, um, the ability to do fate mapping, the ability to tag cells using Cree-Lox recombination, and then ask what happens to what you just said um, that you know what happens to the response of these cells and track the response of these cells after an acute injury So as as uh, Jamie was just asking, you know it's like, We can do that in mice and humans It's much more difficult because we don't have those elegant genetic tools to do that. But what we do have um, in the human system are stem cell models and organoid models. Um, So figure two now that we're going to look at is is how we built a stem cell slash organoid model to understand the abilities of these scgb 3 a 2 RAS cells and whether those cells could self-renew make more of themselves, but also turn into this alveolar type 2 cells. I showed you in the previous figure, sometimes we would see these RAS cells express markers of the alveolar type 2 cell. And I didn't go into uh, to deep discussion about the, the transcriptomic analysis, but the transcriptomic analysis using something called trajectory analysis suggested a relationship between the 3A2 RAS cells and the SFTPC. AT2 cells. So informatically, as well as histologically, it looked like there was a relationship between these two cells. And one thought was that maybe the RAS cells, whether it's a normal homeostatic uh, turnover or in response to an injury, maybe they can make an alveolar type 2 cell. So we developed this, uh, what we thought was pretty elegant um, bilineage, dual lineage reporter stem cell model. And in this context, we inserted, using homologous recombination, we inserted a cherry uh, red fluorescent reporter into the 3A2 human locus in a human ES cell model. And then we also inserted a green EGFP fluorescent uh, uh, CDNA into the SFTPC human gene. So both of these reporters were inserted into the RUES2 ES cell model. And we have protocols to turn these cells into either RAS cells or into into alveolar type two cells from previous work that we've had with our collaborators. So we took these cells, right? And we turned them into RAS cells and that's the the red state as you see in A. So these cells will turn red, they'll grow and you can passage them, you know, several times. They'll grow in these nice little sphere like organoids. What we found is that when you took the red cells and you simply put them in media that helped promote them to turn into AT2 cells, within two to three days, they would rapidly turn off markers for the RAS cell state and quickly turn on markers and gene expression programs for the alveolar AT2 cell state. This was really rapid. Normally, if we were to try to take these, uh, these ES cells and make alveolar type two cells, AT2 cells, normally that would take two to three weeks. But when they were already uh, in the red RAS cell state, they would turn into AT2 cells within two to three days. So that was an incredibly rapid response. And and B of this figure, what we then showed also was that we could take the red cells, the RAS cells, we grow them, passage them, put them into the media, that would turn them into AT2 cells, turn green on, turn red off. Um, And then we could continue to passage those green cells as well, multiple times. But when we tried to take those green cells and put them back into the media that would promote the RAS cell, the red cell state, they would not go backwards. In other words, they could go from red RAS state to green AT2 state, but they could not go from green AT2 state back to the RAS red state. Um, So that suggested to us that it was a unidirectional differentiation process, that RAS cells could make AT2s, but AT2s could not make RAS cells. And, and through a series of experiments, I don't want to go into too much detail in we found that a couple of molecular pathways seem to govern this process. Um, they were notch, notch signaling, which is important for cell-cell, direct cell-cell communication, helps to maintain, we know it helps to maintain airway cell fate in the mouse. And indeed, these RAS cells, it seems to maintain and promote their RAS cell state. Um, and it seems to inhibit their ability to turn into AT2 cells. So if you inhibit Notch, DAPT is the small molecule that actually inhibits the Notch pathway. If you inhibit Notch over in C, you can see the, the RAF cells just turn off Hgb3a2, which is shown by loss of the red fluorescent marker, but it actually increases the intensity of the green cell marker, um, the ovular type two cell state. So it seems to be important to maintain the RAS state and inhibiting it will actually sort of push the cells into the AT2 state. Conversely, over an E, we found that Wnt signaling, and we know from multiple different experiments from our lab and other labs, that Wnt signaling is important for the AT2 state. It is not important for the, the 3A2 uh, RAS cell state. And indeed, if we put an activator Wnt CURE, which is um, a GSK3 beta inhibitor, activates the Wnt pathway. We put that into these cultures. It shuts down 3A2 expression, red fluorescence, and it promotes and turns on uh, SFTPC, the alveolar type two cell state. So it looks like Notch and Wnt are sort of balancing the ability of these RAS cells to either self-renew and stay in the airway, or to turn into alveolar type two cells um, into the alveolus. And I'll pause there for another moment and see if there's other questions.
2: Um, yeah, thank you. Um, for me, I'm, I'm fine. Uh, Jamie, Katie, do you have a question right there?
1: For now, I'm happy to wait till the end. Thank
2: you. Okay, cool. thank you.
3: Cool. All right. So so the next figure, figure three, is a pretty simple one because it's, it's sort of a repeat of figure two, except we did this with primary cells uh, isolated from human lungs. So, you know, one of the questions we got was, okay, these stem cell models, as I just showed you in Figure 2, they're great, they're wonderful, they're elegant. Again, we can put in fluorescent reporters and track cells as they turn, you know, go from one state to the next. But is this really how, in this case, the SGB382 RAS cells, is this really how they behave in vivo? And again, we can't, we certainly can't do lineage tracing uh, in humans, that's obviously something that's just not uh, possible. Um, but if we could isolate the primary cells, those RAS cells from the human lung, we could still do organoids. We could culture them in 3D matrices and say, okay, do these, you know, RAS cells derived from human lung, do they actually turn into alveolar type 2 cells as denoted by SFTPC expression? And indeed, we were, you know, using uh, bioinformatics, we're able to look for and find a cell surface marker for RAS cells that was... You know, we could enrich for those cells. It's uh, called Ccam6 or CD66c is the other name for it. So we could use fax analysis, basically antibodies to pull these cells out. This marker is expressed in other cell types in the lungs, so we sort of negatively gated, got rid of all those other cells using other antibodies. So we pulled out a, a population of cells that was, you know, Ccam6 positive. But negative for alveolar type two cells, negative for basal cells. The other population expresses this marker, um, and through a bunch of series of experiments, we showed that you know what we pulled out was pretty pure, this RASC population. So when we put that then, those SCGB32 positive cells, into an organoid um, model system, and look at these after three weeks, what we found is about sixty five percent of these organoids were alveolar type 2 cells. So they started out completely negative for alveolar type 2 markers. But within three weeks, you know, essentially almost two-thirds of them would turn into alveolar type 2 cell organoids. Again, suggesting that these cells have the ability to turn into these alveolar type 2 cells, another progenitor cell. So it's it's looking like these RAS cells at this point are a progenitor that you know, that is capable of generating another stem progenitor cell in the lung and where it's located at the very distal end of the airway, suggesting it's probably helping to maintain these cells in these multiple different compartments in that unique respiratory bronchial region of the human lung. So that's what would this, this figure allowed us to do, was to say, okay, the actual cells themselves from a human lung have this capability. I'll pause there for a second. Does anybody else have any questions before I go on to the next figure?
1: I actually do, but I, I, I really want to make sure you get through your talking time. I, I, I know we are limited, so um, I will hold on to mine. Okay, thing, okay. Please.
3: All right, I'll just go on to the last figure then, the last main figure in the paper, and certainly I'm happy to answer any questions uh, with these, this data as well as what's in the supplements. So the last figure then, um, you know, gets to the point where we've identified a new cell type that's unique to the human lung, doesn't seem to be found in the mouse lung. It's in the ferret lung you know, um, because ferrets have this respiratory bronchial structure um, and their lungs are more similar to humans. So then we wanted to say if this, you know, unique cell type has the ability to populate both this respiratory bronchial region and also make alveolar type two cells. This region I should uh, uh, actually discuss for a moment in the context of, of disease and injury. This respiratory bronchial region has been known for many years to be a highly susceptible site of injury and chronic lung disease. Um, using imaging, CT scans, et cetera, longitudinally in the human population of people that have you know, different pack years of smoking history, have COPD. It's been known that this region is disrupted way before people actually have other phenotypes of, of lung disease like COPD or emphysema. So it seems like disruption of this respiratory bronchial precedes many other symptoms and phenotypes in chronic lung disease. So again, that suggests that, you know, this region is important. It might, you know, if you damage this region or this region gets perturbed, it might then itself you know, be causal in, in you know, having these other downstream phenotypes appear in people. So we wanted to ask, is this RAS cell disrupted in a, the most common lung disease, which is COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So we did again, started out with single cell transcriptomics on a pop, you know, a group of uh, COPD samples. And what we found right away was that we saw this new population. So we saw the RAS population again, that's in dark red and A. But then within the AT2 population, which is in the blue colors, we found that there's this new subpopulation that did not really come out in the normal one. And that's this new population, is a population of alveolar type two cells that has increased expression of scgb 2 the RAS marker. And again, suggesting that maybe as these cells are going from the RASC cell state into the alveolar type two cell state, they they keep, you know, they have elevated expression of RASC cell markers as they do this, and they're acting abnormally. And then, you know, basically you know, through a series of other experiments in B and C, you know, this is all the informatic data. We definitely show that that exists as a unique population the alveolar type two population. And in D, that just shows you the co-expression of these two markers, SCGP382 and LAMP3 for alveolar type 2 cells. So there's definitely cells that are expressed, increased numbers of cells expressed, expressing markers of both of these cell types. And what was really, really cool, uh, at least for for many of us was when we looked at, if you look at panels E, F, and G, and, and these are, um, and H as well, and these are basically going back and looking at people that don't have, COPD. Like in D CO is, is Frank COPD. E and F and G and H are basically people as well as ferrets subjected to increasing amounts of smoking. So in humans, obviously this is just, we get samples, human lung samples from people that have different, you know, have been smoking for different uh, amounts of time and years. And I think, you know, just basically you can look and see in the graph and G I think probably illustrates it the best is that the more you smoke, the more of these double positive sort of confused alveolar type two cells that have increased levels of RAS cell signature in them, the more of those cells you see. And, you know, looking in the ferret, we could actually do the experiment. We can actually subject ferrets to six months of cigarette smoke exposure. We see the same thing. We see the increase of these double positive cells. Now these double positive cells are uh, messed up in various ways, um they have changes in metabolism changes in immunological response as well at least by gene signature analysis Go. so they're definitely not normal alveolar type 2 cells and they suggest that um, these RAS cells are going to misbehave in some of these chronic lung disease models or chronic smoking injury models so this really does bring some you know sort of disease relevance to the finding of this new cell type that is it's misbehaving in these disease and injury models. So I will pause there and and take any of your questions.
2: Thank you so much. This is such an amazing and um, very important work. So really appreciate you taking the time and coming here to explain this to us. And um, that these cells are highly involved in diseases is quite interesting. Um, do, you, um, do you in the future, or maybe you started already, w- uh, would um, have kind of a screening, a pre-screening to see if there's um, predisposition be- maybe in these cells in people that then end up um, getting lung cancer versus not or being more affected by COVID? versus um, healing better? Is there, you know, a plan or is there data that shows like a predisposition or a vulnerability for those disorders in those cells?
3: So, yeah, great. You know, I'm gonna sort of answer that with like, sort of divide that into two questions, I think, Katerina. So one is our knowledge of this cell type. Can we track the behavior of the cell to sort of predict, you know, either primarily like either maybe the response to acute injury or a chronic lung disease. And I would say, you know, that's one of the questions we have. Can we potentially find biomarkers, you know, that say this cell is expanding abnormally or not expanding enough and then correlate that with, you know, the the response of, of the patient to, to any of these injuries. So that is certainly something we're very interested in and, and are looking at. Um, the other is, you know, is really the question of like, you know, how does this cell behave in different disease models? You know, I talked to you about COPD, it's the most prevalent chronic lung disease, but now that we're sitting here in the, you know, the the world of COVID and an acute, you know, respiratory and uh, infectious disease, how is the cell going to behave, you know, in that model? Um, The weakness we have with humans is everything is observational, so we can't really perturb the system in a controllable way, but we are looking at people and samples from from COVID-19 patients. We're also looking at people and samples that uh, the people that, that are deceased because they had lethal influenza. I mean, you know, as, as much as we talk about COVID, there's still thousands of people a year, tens of thousands of people a year, just in the United States alone, that die from lethal influenza, which is similar, you know, as far as how people die from ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, as COVID-19, so we are definitely looking at the behavior of these cells in those acute injury models. It's, it'd be shocking to me that these cells are not affected, um, but we really are in early days, and we don't know exactly how yet that they will be affected.
0: Uh, if I may ask a question about uh, speculative therapies that might result in this, uh, could you comment on that?
3: Right, um, so I think probably, I mean, for us, myself and and for the you know the first author i should mention maria basil she's a md phd pulmonary fellow in my lab incredibly talented we're we're going to hopefully keep her on as faculty here at university of pennsylvania and her clinical interest is copd um so a couple of statistics that are a little you know shocking to, to me over the last couple of years that i wasn't really aware of until we started working on this is that who world health organization predicted back in I think 2010 or 2011 that COPD would be, you know, uh, the third leading cause of death by 2030. Um, it's actually became the third leading cause of death in 2018 or 2019. So way ahead of schedule. And it's now predicted that COPD could become the leading, the number one cause of death in the world in the next 10 to 20 years. Um, and it probably will be. And I think this is, this these, pre- these predictions were all made before COVID-19 before we, you know, had this enormous impact on a respiratory system. So this one disease alone is likely to become the leading cause of death in the next 10 to 20 years, which, you know, 10 years will go back, go by pretty fast. And so from the standpoint of like, how is this going to leverage our ability to develop or under, you know, new therapies or even just understand disease better COPD, you know, we don't even really know what COPD is. It's a degenerative disease. It's basically the lungs start to fall apart and it's progressive and there's nothing we can do about it. So I think you know we have a whole lot of information we still need to learn about this disease at a cellular level. But our hope is a couple of things I think that we might be able to address is one, can we come up with biomarkers as I mentioned earlier? The the sad fact is, something like COPD, people don't show up to the hospital until they're really, really sick. You have a lot of what's called reserve capacity in your respiratory system. You can you can walk around with you know one third of your lung function being gone, and it, you won't even notice. It just it's not you know there's so much reserve capacity. So when you start losing lung function, you've already lost almost half of your lung as far as functionality goes. And at that point, the disease has progressed so far that it's hard to reverse it. So if we can come up with biomarkers, maybe that we can test people, you know, say a blood test or something, maybe it's something that's given off by these RAS cells when they're sick and they're abnormal. That I think would be huge because if we can we can intervene earlier, we have a greater chance of reversing the disease. But obviously, the ultimate goal is to to reverse it by reactivating the stem progenitor activity of these cells, and obviously multiple cells in the lung, it's a very heterogeneous organ. So I think right now we're just in the mode of trying to acquire as much information as we can because we still don't understand some of the basic elemental facts of some of these diseases.
0: Wow, that sounds like uh, quite a tough problem, but uh, lots of potential for, I think, uh, early interventions. As you said, I myself work on uh, rapid sensor ID and we deal with biomarkers. so. Uh, It's always something that we're uh, on the lookout for, especially given the new, um, I guess, generation of electronic equipment that kind of miniaturizes this kind of uh, point of care potentially so that folks could make these kind of detections earlier at home. I myself had a problem with delayed diagnosis with my cancer. Uh, It delayed my treatment by about 10 months, having argued with seven physicians who weren't familiar with my particular uh, disease and uh and that's me as a biophysicist so i can only imagine the kind of difficulty even if people do have uh some disease and it's obscure or in this case very difficult i think to diagnose and perhaps people don't even notice that they have the problem um so it's it it seems quite vicious nature is so cruel sometimes thank you for the answer
2: um, I wanted to ask so d- is the increase in that disorder related to more toxins and pollutants that we um, that we are exposed to um, is that related and um, maybe there could be an indicator of um, just with just general inflammation in the body related to responses to environmental, um, Impact um, would that be a good enough indicator to pursue? Yes. A-
3: yes. So the so the increase in COPD is is due to a couple of things, and one of them is increased pollution from biomass, you know, burning of biomass, and especially in you know poorer countries. Um, but it's also good to know to understand that about twenty seven percent of people with COPD don't smoke and are not subjected to you know massive levels of, of biomass. Or, or pollution, you know, they're in areas that are not overly polluted. So there's probably an underlying genetic thing, but definitely it, the environmental insult is a huge contributor, and probably the primary contributor to a disease like COPD. So yeah, I mean, I think obviously one of <laughs> one of the biggest pushes, certainly in, in, here in the states, has been to decrease smoking, right? Because it's still a huge contributor, but it's not the only contributor. Um, and ultimately I think that you know there's a lot of people that smoke a lot, you know, smoke a ton, and yet never get COPD. So there's a lot of you know details we don't really understand. Obviously, these environmental insults increase dramatically the significance of, of these chronic diseases and other you know chronic lung diseases beyond COPD as well. So I think that's a huge issue and we, we still are trying to figure out what the interplay between the external environment and the lung is.
2: Do you think maybe non-coding DNA that is more uh, transposable an- elements um maybe even close to more the telomere region could be a contributor um that um that this this I'm just starting to think already <laughs> what could a good biomarker be what
3: Yeah what no know. no yeah I think it's a great question so um, in COPD, it's unclear. I will say another very, um, you know, common lung disease, uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, also called, called IPF, um, has is been known and has been demonstrated to be primarily caused. A lot of it, at least, is caused by telomerase mutations mutations in the telomerase pathway. So, so that you know, as far as like things being close to the telomeres and losing that telomerase, as sort of preservation of genomic information. That is certainly that certainly underscores another fairly common lung disease, and you know whether that has an effect in COPD or not, it's unclear. We no one has actually looked at it carefully, and certainly from the say GWAS screens and stuff like that, that has not come out. But I think you know again, chronic diseases, whether it's COPD or IPF and or other tissues as well, um, these are generally you know as as we sort of call them degenerative diseases, right? They're the tissues in the lung in particular does have the ability to repair itself and maintain itself by certain cell types, proliferating and redifferentiating. But something happens that sort of tips that balance, right? Tips that balance to the point where either it's uh, degenerates in a progressive fashion or even maybe, you know, ages, you know, and put aging in, a, in quotations, they're not like your true age, but, you know, sort of ages, it degenerates faster than your rest of your body or normal life span would would indicate so i do think that some of these things like telomerase um, uh, mutations pathways senescence is another thing that people have been looking at recently is there an exaggerated level of senescence in some of these lung diseases and can we come up with biomarkers for that so there is definitely a lot of interest in that stuff
1: And can I ask, um, when you were talking before about the abular uh, type 2 given, is it double, please correct me if I'm making any mistakes here, um, but the, the type 2 given double positives, you said, um, when they were being damaged, right. is that messing up whatever signal you said that we're not totally sure what's doing to, to say we're damaged, please make more type 1?
3: Right, right, yeah. So that that's definitely a, a, a great question. We think it might be, we don't have a lot of direct evidence yet because again, working in the human system has its limitations, but we think that those damaged double positive cells probably don't have as much of an ability to say, proliferate or respond to a chronic diseased region. I can tell you that they do have changes in their ability to respond to the immune or inflammatory environment. And one of the, sort of uh, observations people see all the time in, in in human lung disease patients chronic lung diseases there's an increased inflammatory cell you know component to these chronic diseases obviously you know that's going to happen in any sort of acute injury or acute disease but it's interesting that it happens also in these chronic diseases and you have to imagine that maybe you know what's cause and effect is not a little bit unclear but certainly if these cells which normally we would think the RAS cells normally could make alveolar type two cells, and then those alveolar type two cells could make alveolar type one cells. If that sequence of events is disrupted because the cells are either responding to and or just intrinsically have some defects related to the inflammatory environment, then yeah, I think that could have a really big impact and that's something that we're very, very interested in looking at further
1: so is is this a little bit like the lungs actually have the capability to regenerate um and and heal, but there's like uh the distress signals not getting through so that they don't know to um start repairing things
3: yes that that is exactly right you know lungs as we've talked about have have a quite expansive ability to repair i mean if you and this is—we've seen this uh, recently with the COVID nineteen pandemic. If you look at a CT scan of somebody that comes in, they're in intensive care unit. They're on a, a respirator or ventilator. Their lungs are just—you know—it's just a mess. I mean, it's just blown up. But these patients, if they survive, come back in six months later, and their lungs aren't perfect. But ninety ninety five percent of that tissue damage is been repaired or regenerated, which is quite remarkable. Um, because of the intricate and and complex structure that the lung has. So there's a lot of ability to repair and, and regenerate. So I think that as, you know, it's these chronic diseases though, where it's like if you're smoking over a period of 20, 30 years, you're giving like micro insults, like micro injuries over, you know, a period of that time that you just sort of wear the system down. Right. I mean, it's like the acute injuries happens rapidly within a few weeks, a few months, but the chronic, insults that happen over decades that's a much much more difficult thing for the tissue to respond to and at some point it just wears the system out you know the other thing to think about also is you know there's probably an epigenetic component to this you know it's like it's not like the genes themselves change but the regulation of those genes including the epigenetic regulation of those pathways that are involved in tissue repair are probably altered over time and once that starts to go downhill, you know, it's probably hard to reverse itself.
1: Fascinating. And a question from someone in our audience, Victoria, she was asking, do you think your work might lead to regenerative uh, therapies?
3: We hope so. Um, it'll obviously take some time. I mean, that's the, the brutal truth is that this is a cell that we didn't know existed, existed a year ago. So it'll take some time once, you know, to understand how the cell behaves and all the disease modeling we talked about. But we do hope that it will. I think, you know, ultimately, you know, there's going to be probably two basic ways that we're going to be able to repair and regenerate the lung. One is to, to leverage the pathways that exist that, that Mother Nature has already designed for this. I mean, the, th- the thing that's sort of, you know, humbling when you do this is that you realize that nature figured this out, you know, thousands, millions of years ago. <laughs> you know, the ability of the tissue to repair in a, in a coordinated fashion is there. So we just have to figure out how that, that happens and figure out ways to leverage things and turn things on and off. The other way is to potentially put cells that we grow in a dish back into the lung, transplant them back in. And that's where some of the stem cell models you know, could potentially down the road have, have a real impact. And, and we are working avidly on this with, within our own lab and working with collaborators as well. Can we grow these cells in a dish, transplant them back in, Will they take up residence in the lung? Will they behave normally? And will they regenerate damaged tissue after that? So there's a lot of hope um, and, you know, I think it just requires a lot of brilliant young minds to get in there and and do some of the hard
1: work. That's amazing and exciting. And One one question that I had from the, oh, I'm
2: sorry. Leonard, he he joined the stage. I wanted to check with him and then I'll catch up. Thank you. Hi Leonard, welcome to the stage. Do you have a question?
4: Um, yeah 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 um thank you so much um I'm just um, enjoying um I don't have a question related to um the, the lung cell type thing but um my question is it's not related to this so I'm kind of I'm in a dilemma whether to ask or not to ask it, but it's related to to um to these um, it's about the general type thing because um sometime back um I I had my my genotype uh, checked and then um, the doctor said it's an AC Yeah, I think he, he said it's AC and when I googled it people were saying all kinds of things and I was kind of discouraged but later on I went to the hospital and then the doctor said there's nothing to be worried about it's okay it's fine so I wanted to ask if you have AC genotype is that okay
3: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. But the short answer is I don't know, Leonard. I, okay. I think that I think one of the the upsides and downsides now is that we can genotype ourselves, you know, to a fairly high resolution. The downside is we okay. don't know what, we don't know what these things really mean, right? Uh, okay. It, it's a real it's a real challenge for for scientists as, and physicians in particular, as we learn that you know maybe some of these genotypes are associated with some disease states. But you know it's it's an association. It, you know some of these things might increase your relative risk by a little bit, um, but overall, you know it's not going to be that dramatic. So I don't know about this particular this particular uh, genotypic change that you describe, um, but I think if your doctor doesn't think it's a big deal, that's you're probably. <laughs> it's oh yeah, yeah,
4: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. He said it's not a big deal. He said it's very good because um, they are they are very resistant to some minor minor um, diseases so um, they are very strong so yeah but so maybe I, it could be that what I read online is there maybe be somebody's blog and is' just trying to put something together which yeah. which probably isn't true yeah because um, it wasn't backed by any research or any finding after all
3: exactly stay, stay with stay with the science and stay with the facts I mean every, people say crazy things online sometimes
4: <laughs> yeah yeah it's true absolutely absolutely. Thank
2: you. Thank you. Jamie, think, go thank ahead. you so yeah, thanks so thank
1: much. Yeah. Thank you. I think the I think the rooster in the background has a question.
2: <laughs> Jamie, you had the last question? Or does anyone have a last question? We have five minutes left, so please go ahead. Yeah, Jamie?
1: Yeah, I did have a question. Katie? Just, I, I,
2: I'm sorry. I myself did on... you... oh, Katie, Jamie, did you un mic? You have a question.
5: Go ahead, Jamie. I'll go after you. Thank you. And um, I was just going to quickly
1: ask him: um, How did how did we miss this cell type for such a long time, and how did you discover it? Because this is a big thing finding a new cell, or, or well, not a new cell, but a newly discovered one. Well,
3: I, yeah, I think it's just it's it's from advances in technology. Simply put, I mean, we were not able to really profile, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of cells in the human body up until, you know, until up until like the last five to seven years. So you know, it's really just having the technology to go in and do that is really what it comes down to. We knew this structure existed for quite some time, anatomists, you know, classic uh, physician scientists, anatomists back in the 1950s and 60s had seen in the respiratory bronchioles strange looking cells, but they didn't know what they were. You know, we just have the technology to go in and look at them more carefully. So that's really how it came about.
1: Thank you so much,
5: uh, Katie. Hi, it's Katie. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Morrissey, for such a fascinating conversation. Really, really cool research. Thank you, Katerina and um, everyone for hosting this space. Um, amazing conversation as always. Um, I had many questions, some of them have somewhat been answered. Um, I'm really interested in the application Um, and potential future application for COVID. Um, And also just, you know, in terms of, as um, Io Eric also mentioned in terms of biomarkers and someone who um, is a geneticist and also very interested uh, for personal reasons in COVID, um, you mentioned epigenetics and biomarkers. And I'm just wondering without having to, give too much away or you know even conceptually are there any sorts of um biomarkers firstly to assess risk um i'm interested again in the epigenetics and then if there's some way forward for treatment and i know you somewhat answered that with um seeing if you can transfer the cells into into the lungs and human body but thank you so much for a fascinating conversation appreciate your time
3: Sure. I mean, I, you know, I think the, um, the short answer for the biomarkers, you know, is we need to develop a nice uh, study, essentially almost like a, a mini uh, translational study to see if people that have chronic or, or acute you know response to disease, whether it's COVID-19 or other acute infections, whether there are going to be markers of this cell type, the RAS cell type, um that are increased or decreased hopefully you know increase would be the easiest way to look at these things and the easiest kind of biomarker would be something that was secreted into the blood um and it's challenging you know to do that obviously because uh, you got to find the right marker and it's got to have like enough of a change that you can have a, develop an assay that's sensitive for it but i think that's coming and, and again i think that would be have, have huge impact To be able to track people that have uh, either chronic or even acute lung disease, whether it's COVID or influenza, and the potential response to treatments, you know, ultimately, and I'll just sort of sort of end it on this right now too. It's a field, you know, if I can, and you know, get any of you interested in lung biology. It's a field that we have very, very few treatments for. As many of you know, if you go into the hospital, you get steroids. You know, now that we have some antivirals, but you really only have steroids high-flow oxygen, um, and you know maybe bronchodilators. We don't have a lot of the uh, medicines or, or procedures to say, the cardiovascular uh, field has. So we've really got to do this and develop some new therapies, and it's, you know it's, it's critical. This, we're going to be faced with a tsunami of, of lung disease in the next 10 to 20 years, and it's really critical that we, we address some of these things with new therapies.
2: Yeah, that is actually interesting because um, we had here um, a few weeks ago, Dr. Celia um, Aleham. Uh, she actually developed a blood test for Parkinson um, screening because she um, works with um, immune response, especially T cells um, that basically recognize the the plugs early on and the, have, um, you know, an increase in the biomarker basically of T cells that already recognize um, these uh, alpha-synuclein plugs um, and, um, yeah, and that way she could um, develop like a early um, diagnosis. Um, in peripheral blood um, for Parkinson. So I was wondering if there's maybe also, would there be a T cell response of um, when the cells turn into something they shouldn't, or um, um, or if there's an increase um, in um, disease model and some type of signal that the C- T cells would uh, react to in that way? have a biomarker.
3: Right, right, yeah. And I hate to say it, but this will probably be my last answer. I'll have to, to sign off after this, I have to go to another meeting. But yeah, the immune response is clearly a signal we see in our um, transcriptomic analysis that these these RAS cells, in particular, the ones uh, isolated from COPD patients. So there is definitely changes in the immune response in these cells um, to this sort of enhanced or increased inflammatory environment. And, and chronic lung disease. So I think that's definitely one way to look at it. Obviously, those inflammatory responses are helpful in many many contexts, but they can also be, you know, harmful if they are increased for too long a period of time, and they can dampen the ability of the cells either to proliferate or to differentiate. So I'm really sorry I have to leave now, but um, it's been a wonderful time. Thank, thank
2: you, thank you so, so much for your time. Um, mm. And um, we really appreciate that you took the time to come here. is really interesting work, and we wish you all the grant money. And, and all the
1: funding. <laughs> yes, We're all the funding. Hurdle. and the
3: That's wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Always and, a challenge.
2: Uh, yeah, and hopefully you'll come back sometime with some updates if you would be sure. willing to. Happy,
3: Thank happy you. To, happy to. Thank you very much. Have a good
1: day, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank bye. You. Have a good day, Doctor. Thank you.
2: So, yeah, thank you, everyone, for coming. I'm sorry if we didn't get to your questions, um, uh, but uh, we will hopefully have him back soon at some point. And we usually, on Sundays, have a weekly recap room where we summarize, again, the research, and people, give people an opportunity to um, ask questions maybe they didn't get to ask, and then um, we try our best to answer them. Or if you have an urgent question, you can message me and uh, I will then send an email to the guest speaker and uh, usually they respond. So feel free to message me with any important questions you have and uh, we'll, we'll try to get them answered. And thank you everyone for coming. If you like uh, discussions like these, uh, follow the Science Society. We'll have um, another room later um, and it's the mit researcher dr mcguire he will talk about newly discovered complex molecules in space um that he discovered it's a it's a really cool um interesting space room uh, later on and uh, then we'll have a room again on friday and i don't know if you know but our bees, um, honeybees are quite struggling. And um, it's really important that we have them for food security, but also, uh, you know, for diversity of uh, plants um, because they are pollinators. So we will have a researcher from the UK coming to talk about um, his newest publication that he developed a bee that's resistant to some of the diseases that are um that are killing all the bees so um and he's a really also really nice uh guest speaker and person so yeah feel free to come back and thank you everyone and um enjoy the rest of your day or evening or morning wherever you are
1: thank you carolina thank you for joining us everybody bye-bye
2: thank you three two one bye everyone